A presentation is a performance, whether it's in front of a large crowd, a conference room, or even in a one-on-one chat with your customer. On today's show, how to steal the show in every one of your performances. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 219. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show will give you access to the best thinkers, resources, and actions to develop your leadership skills. And as so many of us know, one of the key elements to leading effectively is to be a great communicator. And speaking of great communicators, one of my favorite moments from American political history was when Ronald Reagan was running for president. One of the reporters at a press conference asked Reagan, how can an actor run for president? And Ronald Reagan famously responded, how can a president not be an actor? And I was thinking about that quote today because I have on today, not someone who's been president, at least not yet, but that's Michael Port, and he has indeed been a professional actor as well. He's also a New York Times bestselling author of six books, including Book Yourself Solid, The Think Big Manifesto, and his new release, Steal the Show. He's been a successful professional actor, guest starring on shows like Sex and the City, Law and Order, Third Watch. All My Children, and in films like The Pelican Brief and Down to Earth. And I've seen a bunch of those. And these days, he is seen regularly on MSNBC, CNBC, and PBS as an expert in communication and business development. Michael, welcome to the show. I'm glad to have you. Thank you very much. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, the pleasure is mine. And before we get into some of the details on here on how we can steal the show when we're giving a presentation. Uh, let's actually back up here and let's let's talk about that question that Ronald Reagan got many years ago. Uh, what makes you qualified to teach public speaking? After all, you know, a lot of us don't think about professional acting necessarily and then business presentations in the same context. Sure. Well, public speaking is performing. Hopefully it's authentic performing. You know, to me, a good performance is not about fake behavior or phony behavior. A good performance is authentic behavior in a manufactured environment. Authentic behavior in a manufactured environment. If you think about a negotiation, if you think about a job interview, if you think about a sales pitch, if you think about a team meeting, these are all manufactured situations. A job interview is a great example of a manufactured situation. You have one, two, three, maybe more people on one side of the table, and they've decided that they're going to ask this poor schmuck on the other side of the table, and that poor schmuck could be any one of us, a whole series of questions uh, that, you know, and that person's supposed to prove that they are the right one for the job. That is a very manufactured environment. And so there's an element of performance in all of these situations. We decide which parts of our personality are we going to amplify in this particular situation and which parts are we going to downplay? What objectives are we going after here and how are we going to achieve those objectives? And the tactics we choose will often determine whether or not we do achieve those objectives. That's performance. So what I did in Steal the Show was take acting techniques and the 
principles that an actor adheres to and applied them to real life situations. Because mm. the way that we perform during life's high stakes situations determines the quality of our life. Interesting. Interesting. So I think a lot of us feel like when you, I love the way you frame that as manufactured situations. I think sometimes some of us cross the line into manufacturing also our interactions in those manufactured situations. Yeah, that's a problem. Yeah. Where do you see the line between those, Michael? Where's the distinction as far as how do you be authentic in those manufactured situations versus <clears throat> versus manufacturing how you show up and what you communicate? Sure. So when somebody's worried about being inauthentic, I will often ask them if they are inauthentic. So they, if they say, I'm worried about being phony, I'll say, are you phony? And they'll scoff and they'll say, no, of course I'm not phony. What are you talking about? Yeah. I can't believe you asked me that question. I'll say, well, then you don't have to worry about it because if you're not phony, you will not behave in a way that's phony. Hmm. They go, hmm, okay. But it's, if you think about it, it's true. Same thing when people talk about sales. He said, I don't want to sell in a way that's sleazy. Well, are you sleazy? No, of course. Well, then you don't have to worry about it. The, the risk that we run is being too staged. Then we come off as inauthentic. Then we may come off as, as if we are a little bit phony. But it's more likely that it's just a result of being stiff and not allowing us, allowing ourselves to be in the moment and to improvise. And interestingly enough, and this may be counterintuitive, the better prepared you are, the easier it is to be authentic. You would think it's the opposite because often what I hear from uh, our students is that they resist rehearsing for a speech because they feel like they've rehearsed in the past and it's made them stiff. So what they'd rather do is just wing it because they feel that they're quick on their feet and they're clever. And I really get that because I think they're right. If they've rehearsed a little bit in the past, it's likely that when they gave their speech, they, instead of being in the moment, were thinking about trying to recall what they did in rehearsal and attempting to repeat it in that presentation. Mm. And as a result, they're not in the moment. They're actually outside of that space, thinking about something else they did before, and they don't seem connected. But if we know our material so well that we can, quote unquote, throw it away and allow it to come to us organically, spontaneously in the moment, then we are much more connected we are driving forward toward our goals and we come across much more authentic and you know being authentic shouldn't be an act yeah i i really resonate with what you said of those two perspectives of folks feeling like they're not going to prep and just going to improvise and also being prepared and i used to be in that other camp too michael and i remember the very first leader that i worked with who was teaching me how to sell effectively they were insistent on learn the process, learn the process, learn the process, learn what you're going to say. And I remember her message to me was, 
once you get the process down, then you're much more gifted at being able to improvise and to go mm-hmm. off script and to then come back to it. And it was and and I didn't believe it at first, but it was absolutely true. Uh, as it, soon as I, as soon as I got good at it, then yeah. I could improvise so much better. And that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about too. Is you know we need to bring something to the table first, like you said, prepare, have that content that's 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 there and ready, not just necessarily thinking off the top of our head. And I, I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about content because sure. I, I think that's something that that a lot of us don't start the way we should. For many people, the default setting on starting a presentation is to open up a PowerPoint file and start typing. <laughs> um, I know I've done it before. I've seen a lot of people do it. That's not necessarily the best place to start. Um, what's your advice for wh- wh- where do we start when we're trying to create that presentation from scratch? One of the things I address in the book is that that's often how somebody starts a presentation. They will open up PowerPoint and start creating slides. Right. And then they will co- run through their in their head a few times what they would talk about. And they'll say, well, I'll follow the slides as an outline. And if you have a high stakes situation and you need your slides to know what's coming next, you're not prepared enough. The other thing that our students uh, find uh, surprising when they leave our master classes is how many of their slides are left on the cutting room floor, so to speak. Mm. Because as a, as a performer, you don't need slides. I mean, com- you don't, uh, comedians don't use slides when they're, when they're telling their stories. I mean, Kevin Hart or, uh, or Jerry Seinfeld doesn't have a slide deck that he's advancing through and showing you the bullet points of, of his stories that he's telling you. And someone might argue, say, well, I'm not a comedian. Of course you're not. I'm not expecting you to be. They might say, well, I'm, you know, I'm showing the growth of the, you know, second quarter profits. Well, you know, the the, the graph that everybody else has shown uh, for the last five years is not necessarily going to help uh, make your point. So it's it's a little dangerous to to build a presentation around slides, visuals, any audio, any still video, any still images any moving images, we put those in after we've created the content to help tell the story, to help Mm -hmm. deliver on the promise, to help create a feeling in the room. Because our job is to get people to feel differently, think differently, or act differently. That's what we're there to do. So we're always there to deliver on a promise. And there's a couple different ways. I have a couple of different formulas that people can use to create content. I always preface uh, this by reminding folks that there isn't one way to create art. And to me, a speech is art. It really is. You're making something out of nothing. Frank Zappa said, and this is what professional speakers do, you make, Frank Zappa said that art is creating something out of nothing and selling it. That, mm. That's what, what Frank Zappa said art was. And I think there's uh, something to be said for that. So when you're giving a presentation, know that you don't have to follow the rules if you can figure out a way to deliver on your promise more effectively. If you are trying to make a a quick pitch of an idea to somebody, the first thing they consider when you're making that pitch is, well, will this thing work? I mean, is it, is it going to be successful? And they'll think about it based on the way you presented it to them. And, and, and if, if they say, no, I don't think that makes any sense. Well, then it's no, then they turn off. They don't listen anymore. If they say yes, it's still not enough for them to say yes to you. They just said yes to, well, the idea seems like it's sensible. The next question they ask is, well, is this worth my time? 
is this something that we want to allocate resources to? Mm. And if the answer is no, well, then that's it. It's done. They stop listening. If the answer is yes, it's still not enough for them to say yes to you. Because the next question they ask is, well, is this person able to champion this idea? Is this, is this the person that we would say yes to in order to make this thing a reality? And if the answer is no, that's it. They may find somebody else to make that happen because they think it's a, a, an idea that will work and it's worth their time. But if they say yes to that last question, they're saying yes to you. So they need to say yes to the idea making sense, yes to the idea that it's worth their time, and yes to you, and believe that you are the one to champion that idea. So that's always in my mind. Anytime I'm trying to have a, a quick engagement with somebody around an idea or something that I, I want to get a yes on or move forward on. So that's almost where we start the thinking as far as what would be the content we'd bring in is how are we answering those questions for her, our audience, whoever that is. And like you said, there's that may be different in every situation. There's an art to doing that, but centrally mm-hmm. it comes back to how do we answer those questions. Yeah. So I introduced that concept first because it is something that I usually use when, when it's a more cons- constrained or smaller engagement with somebody. So if you're answering questions uh, at a staff meeting, you want to make sure that, you know, you keep getting yeses on those answers, you know, on on those questions rather. They may not be articulating them out loud, but you just make sure you have your basis covered on those three things. But if you're working on a speech, there are five components that are present in most great speeches. And the first is a big idea. And Initially, when somebody's listening to a speech, they don't necessarily have to know that this idea will work, not right at the beginning, but they need to be interested in the idea. And a big idea doesn't need to be different to make a difference. So for example, Martin Luther King's big idea in his I Have a Dream speech was that all men and women are created equal. Mm -hmm. Now that wasn't a new idea that was in the Constitution, but it wasn't realized. It wasn't actually the way the world worked. So in that way, it was a big idea, not a new idea, not a different idea, but a big idea. So number one, you've got a big idea that is relevant to the people in the room. Number two, you're very clear on what the promise is. What promise are you making in that presentation? And that promise has got to be something that they want. That's essential. Now, here's the thing. Sometimes your big idea is confronting because it may ask them to change the way they see the world, change the way they see themselves. And, you know, if, if I've held a particular perspective for 30 years or so, and you ask me to change it in the first few minutes of giving a speech, and I don't even really know you, even if I even if I am a little bit intrigued by it or on some level know that you're probably right, I would push back. I would probably push back because it may bring up bigger issues. Well, does that mean that all these decisions that I've made based on the worldview that I've had have been bad decisions? Does it mean that I've been off my path for so many years? Does it mean that X, Y, and Z? 
And so it's natural for audience members to want to push back against uh, ideas that are confronting to them, even if they're interesting to them. Yeah, and it reminds me of the quote, I think it was from Upton Sinclair, who said, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on his not understanding it. So yeah, when we're- love that. That's, to me, that's the financial industry. Right? There <laughs> you go. Totally, totally. Um, but that's a real reality when we're, when, like you said, we're bringing that a big idea that maybe is contrary to how an organization has done business or how people have been compensated. And that's a, that's a tough, that's a tough, that's a tough challenge for us. Exactly. That's why the third component is making sure that we can demonstrate that we understand the way the world looks to them. Mm. That's, that's really important. So for example, if I'm speaking about public speaking at some point in the conversation, in the speech somewhere, usually earlier on, I will address the fact that I understand that many people are anxious about speaking or in the beginning of this conversation, notice how I talked about it, often people think that performance is phony. That's they equate those two things. Right, right. Because I need to address that right away. Like I get what you're saying and I really understand it. And that's important. We want to make sure we keep bringing that back into the conversation because if they distance themselves from us, then it's easy for them to dismiss us. But if they see, you know what, they're not that unlike me, then they are often more willing to listen to us if you're actually uh, authentic, uh, then you're not acting. You're demonstrating, look, I get the way the world works. Uh, I would love you to consider seeing the world this way. And here's why I think it would be helpful. So because those are the next two components. If the first is the big idea, the second is the promise. The third is making sure that you can demonstrate that you know the way the world looks to them. The fourth is being able to demonstrate the consequences of not adopting the big idea. The consequences. I, I love the fact that you get in front of that too. So it's not just I just present that and I and this big idea, and then I wait for people to give the inevitable objection. That you're getting in front of that and saying, "Hey, I, I know people are going to be thinking that." So I'm going to proactively. Um, I don't know if force is the right word, but I'm going to introduce yeah. that immediately into the conversation so that yeah. we can have it. We can dialogue about it. And also, one of the things that helps to demonstrate that you are authentic is that you're willing to talk about. Uh, some of these things. So if I introduced all of the rewards of adopting the big idea before any of the consequences, well, they may be too grand. They may be too much. Uh, we mentioned financial industry, so let's use them as an example. So if if I'm trying to demonstrate to you the importance of planning for your retirement, but it's not something you really think about because you're young. And I just talk about it's going to be so great because you're going to have this freedom and you'll be able just to live off your required minimum distributions and you'll be able to go anywhere you want and you have a legacy and all this stuff. You might go, yeah, yeah, that's really good. It seems really far off. I, I don't really have to worry about it right now. Or you might go, that's not impo that's impossible. I could never just live off my RMDs. I can't save that much money. You know, you're making up all these things in your head. Right. But if I, if I, if we go into the consequences first, okay, so let's say, let's say you don't save any money. What happens when you're 70? <laughs> you know, now all of a sudden we're, oh, well, uh, I don't know. I live off social security. Okay. Well, how much is social security? Well, I don't know, like 30,000 a year. Yeah. You know, so yeah. now you're going into all the negative. Oh, okay. So what happens when, you know, when you, uh, when you can't pay your mortgage? Well, I, I kicked in my house. Okay. Where are you going to go live? Well, maybe assisted living. Okay. Who's going to pay for that? Well, 
the government, you know, and, and then you can get into some of these issues that will come up. And they say, but if you do do this, you know, here are the rewards uh, that will come from it. Now, if you do it in a way that's very stodgy or over the top uh, or formulaic, you know, people might see through that in, in a way that, oh, I, I get what you're doing here. But what we're attempting to do when we're, we're, when we're giving speeches is be more seamless so that these different ideas, the big idea, the promise, the demonstration that you know the way the world looks, some of the consequences of not adopting the big idea and some of the rewards of adopting the big idea, they're coming in at lots of different moments, at lots of different times throughout the entire presentation so that a presentation may look like this. It may look like here's the way the world could look. Right? Or here's how the world is. Here's how it could look. Here's how the world is. Here's how it could look if you don't adopt this big, big idea. Here's how the world is if you do adopt the big idea. Here's the way the world looks now. Here's the way it could be. You know, it's, uh, you're constantly moving through your ideas and demonstrating what will happen if you don't. So my very first book 10 years ago was Book Yourself Solid. And if I give a keynote on Book Yourself Solid, I'm walking through the whole Book Yourself Solid system, which is a marketing system for getting clients. And... With each building block in the marketing system, I first have to demonstrate what would happen if you don't follow this particular strategy or right. put this building block into place. So, for example, if one of the building blocks is developing a personal brand, well, I got to make sure they understand what will happen if you don't develop a personal brand and then what could happen if you do. It, it, it lines up so well with uh, many of the sales models out there of really having that conversation about, you know, what happens, what are the pain points? And, mm -hmm. you know, it, it's, it's funny, we've ended up talking about the financial industry because I, you may have seen some of these articles too, where they've done studies on people as they're making their 401k elections and they've presented photos in the marketing materials to people and change no other variable, but just had young people in the photos versus having older people in the photos. And when people see older, the people who see the older people in the photos end up making uh, more significant, like substantially significant more elections to their retirement plans minutes after seeing those materials than the people who see the young folks. It's, it's not even talked about. And yet just that suggestion of, oh, I'm, I may need to think about or just have this in my mind of what the future may look like really does change people's behavior in a pretty substantial way. I've even heard that if, if a sketch is done of you or digital images produced of you of how you'll look like when you're old and you see that you'll contribute even more money. Yeah. Yeah. Because of course now you see how it's you. Yeah. It's more relevant to you. I get the way the world looks. So now, you know, you, you see yourself. Oh my God. That's, that's the way the world will look. I don't want the consequences that come along with having no money. If you know, when I look like that, I'm really thinking about in the in the context of our conversation, you know, one of the things you said early on, I mean, so much of this conversation is about what's the message we're bringing? What are we communicating? And, in, and just in case people missed it, I think one of the key distinctions you've pointed out is, you know, a lot of times we think about presentations as the PowerPoint or the visuals or the outline or whatever. And 
And then we think about ourselves, what we're going to say is secondary to that. Okay, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to follow the bullet points on the slides or whatever. And I think one of the key distinctions you're making is saying, hey, we're the presentation, we're the message. The other things, those are the things that are secondary, what the slides are, what the visuals look like, what the images are we bring in, whatever. But it's first and foremost, we got to think of what the messages we're bringing, how we're serving our audience, the communication uh, tools we're using, the delivery. And then the other things, if we do that well, the other things support that. But if we rely on those secondary things to drive the presentation, we're just not going to, we're just not going to get there for our audience. And we have, and we need to care. That's, that's really important because it's very hard to just be good. A client of mine had a book came out, a book, uh, her book came out and she got an opportunity to be on one of the big broadcast morning TV shows. She was super excited and freaking out at the same time. And she said, Michael, what do I do? I really want to be good. I said, mm, you cannot be good. I think she fell off her chair. I said, no, not, not that you are not good, but you can't go into an interview like that and attempt to be good. You can go in there and attempt to be helpful mm. by being in service of the audience and answering the questions in a way that will be helpful to them. And she got it. She went in there and she did a great job. She was less anxious because she wasn't obsessed on whether or not she was going to do a good job. She wasn't worried about how she looked. She wasn't worried about herself. She was concerned more with serving the audience. And the more you show them that you care, the more that you work to serve them, the more they'll appreciate it. And you can do it warts and all. I fell off the stage once into the orchestra pit. It's the best moment of the whole night. Oh, no. You heard a big boom. And I went, just like the kids do, I went, I'm okay. And they laughed and I had to run all the way around and get back up on stage. Uh, but, you know, I'll, I'll stutter. I'll mumble over my words. I'll say an um every once in a while. I might take 20 seconds, 30 seconds longer to get to an answer that's helpful than I would like. But the audience will forgive that if they know that you're working hard to serve them. But if I'm, if I'm on, if I'm on this podcast with you and I'm like, yeah, you know, whatever, you know, you know, you ask me a question. I'm like, yeah, you, you know, they could, it doesn't matter. They're like, oh uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're like, you know, even if I had some, you know, information that was helpful, but it didn't seem like I cared at all. Uh, they don't, they're not interested. That's the key. And that's where you show your humanity, your authenticity, your uh, vulnerability. That's where you are more transparent. And that's, where the connection is. It's not just about the information. Look, think about um, when mothers sing a lullaby to their baby, or fathers for that matter, but let's just take mothers. Most mothers sing the same lullaby to their children. There are only a handful of lullabies. And in fact, there are the same lullabies in many different languages. And the baby doesn't really care so much about the lullaby itself. In fact, it doesn't understand the lullaby. Yeah. But what it does is it cares about the sound of the mother's voice. And so your audience cares more about how you bring them, what you bring them, often than technically what you bring them. I'm so glad you said that because like you, I've been through a lot of speaking training over the years. And so I've worked on my ums and ahs and all those kinds of things. And um, you're a podcaster too. So you may appreciate this, uh, Michael, is that 
you know, once in a while I'll get an email from someone to say, you know, you just have too many ums and ahs and I counted these number in your episode. <laughs> and um, I, I get a couple of those a year now. And uh, I always just I counted uh, them. Oh my God. <laughs> people have too much time on their hands. I think, but, uh, but I, I don't worry about that anymore. I yeah. just, I am like, what, how do I, it, like I think the four words I've always communicated, and you just articulated this beautifully to people when they're thinking about sending a message, it's not about you. It's not mm-hmm. about you. It's all about the audience. And if you come to that place of real, genuine authenticity, am I here because I really care about the audience? Yes, being professional and delivery and doing a good job, uh, certainly. But if you come at that core message, man, you know, great things happen. And mm-hmm. if you worry about the technical things and that becomes the focus of it, then it's yeah. not it's not an authentic message. Yeah. And then- that's that's why the preparation is so helpful because the better prepared you are, the less uh, worried you are about the technical aspects, the fewer ums and ahs you have. For sure. Because you're not, when you're giving a speech, you're not floundering. You're not looking all over the room to try to figure out what comes next. You're much more directed and your speech is then more clear. So if, if my podcast... Uh, the first 40 some odd episodes are just me. First 40 some odd episodes are just me. And you can hear that I'm off the cuff. I have obviously a topic, but I don't, I'm not reading a script or something, but you will very rarely hear an um or an ah when I'm delivering that podcast. You may hear a few here or there, but for the most part, you won't hear too many of them because I'm very directed and intentional about what I'm trying to teach them. And I take my time with it. And when I need to think about what's coming next, I just pause until it comes to me and then I will deliver. Now, I don't do that as much on interviews because it's a little harder to pause for longer periods of time on the radio or on podcast interviews. You actually, as a host, do a very good job of letting your guests pause, which is really nice because often a host will think that the guest is done speaking as soon as they put leave any room in there. And so what you have to do as a host, as a guest, is continue to talk and you don't, you know, not able to put a lot of space in there. But the audience really does want space because that pause is where they consume the information. And so oftentimes speaking teachers will tell their students to slow down when they are fast talkers, quote unquote. And I, I, know, I know why they're asking them to slow down. I think the, the advice that would be well taken by the student is to pause more. Rather than focusing on slowing down is to focus on the pause because the power is in the pause. Because that's where people consume what you have to say. So I can talk very quickly. I'm, I'm from New York. New Yorkers talk quickly. We can understand what we say, you can understand exactly what I'm saying right now and I'm moving quickly. But if I have something that you need to hear, I'll make sure that there's enough space in there that you can hear it so that if I'm on the stage, I stand and I land it. And I, being comfortable with that silence is very powerful. And often the reason that we put all the ums and ahs there it, when we're having a conversation is because we don't want them to speak. No, 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 I'm not done. So um, 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 we do that so they don't speak. And we will often do that on stage because we're not comfortable with the silence. So we'll put noise in there 
because it makes us feel more comfortable. It's the same reason we'll put uh, words, filler words, basically uh, sorta, a kinda, uh, because we're not clear on what we have to say. And if we're going to give a speech, we should be clear enough on what we have to say to deliver it without too many basicallys or kindas or sort of, or for example, if somebody's pitching a new idea, if you come into my office and you pitch me an idea and I say, so what's the big idea here? And you say, well, basically done. That's it. Okay. Thank you very much. Next. I'm not looking for basically, I'm looking for this is what it is. Yeah. You know, it's so, it's so fascinating how uncomfortable our society in general is with silence. And I appreciate you saying that one of the big criticisms I've heard of podcasts, hosts, or interviewers in general from both guests and from listeners of podcasts is the, the host gets in the way of letting the other person shine. And it comes right back to what we were just talking about. It's not about you. It's not about me. The show's not about me. It's about how do I help people shine and bring out and, and be a good, I like to think about it as an archaeologist. How do I bring out what, what mm. my audience needs to hear that's going to help them today in their work and in their organizations and their business? And uh, you're a great example of that, Michael, and I really appreciate you bringing a ton of value here today. It's given me a ton to think of. I appreciate the model. We could talk for hours about this, but we want to make sure to honor our audience's time and your time. So for folks who uh, would like to get in more on this, and I hope folks will, if really looking at the model that you've presented in the book, again, it's called Steal the Show. What's the best way for people to uh, find out about the book, Michael? I know it's on Amazon, but I know you also have a website set up for the book as well. Sure. So of course, the book is available anywhere books are sold. And if you buy a copy and you go to stealtheshow.com, at stealtheshow.com, there are bonuses that we give away when you buy a copy and if bigger bonuses if you buy a few more copies. So you want to check that out. The other thing you can do is you can listen to Steal the Show with Michael Port, which is a podcast, obviously all about the topics that are in the book. And there are a lot of short content-driven how-to type uh, episodes. There are a few that are longer, and then there are some real quick tips, and there are answer uh, audience Q and A type sessions, and that's a really, really great place to go. So you can subscribe to that, and you get a lot of content uh, that's really consumable and and easy to listen to. And if that resonates with you, then you also will probably want to pick up a copy of the book. Michael, I really appreciate it. I've already purchased a copy of the book, and I'm actually going to gift it to my friend Tom Henschel, who uh, is the uh, host of the Look and Sound of Leadership podcast, and he's a professional, was a, a past professional actor as well, too. And so, oh, that's cool. I know he's going to really enjoy the model. And uh, hey, man, I just really appreciate your time and your wisdom. Thanks for helping us all be more authentic communicators and and presenting a model that's really helpful to people. I so appreciate it. I please, I'm the one who has the gratitude. I never take it for granted. So thank you so much. Michael Pord is a New York Times bestselling author and most recently of the book, Steal the Show. Thanks, Michael. Thank you. Appreciate it. I really appreciate Michael's time in adding to our wisdom on how we can steal the show each time. And one of the things that is staying with me after this conversation, I'm recording this a bit after uh, the conversation happened, is uh, Michael's thoughts on speed of how we talk. And I certainly have many times over the years coached clients on slowing down their rate of speaking when communicating to an audience. 
And after this conversation, I've actually uh, probably will rethink spending time doing that in the future. And instead, really looking at it from his perspective on are you giving people space to absorb what it is you're saying through the silences and the pauses that a lot of people don't necessarily do, but not to worry so much about the speed. The audience is going to track and stay with you and understand it. And it just all comes back to that perspective we talked about in this conversation of it's all about the audience. When we're giving a presentation, our 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 gut our gut sense, I think for most of us, is to worry about us. How do I look and how am I coming off and my preparation I need to do for this presentation? And oh my gosh, I'm so glad it's done. The audience, how much they benefit from it often is the secondary consideration, in some cases, even an afterthought. We all have to reframe our thinking when we get in front of a group of, I'm not here for me. It's not about me. It's about this audience whether that's one person, a group, conference, whoever we're speaking to, it's about them. How do I give them value? And if you take that advice and take a lot of the strategies Michael talked about today, I think you're going to be doing a lot better than a lot of folks out there as far as how you frame your next presentation. And I hope that you also join the conversation if you found this helpful and are looking to have some more dialogue on it with others in the community. Go to coachingforleaders.com slash 219. That's where you can find the show notes for this episode as well. And the next Q&A show is going to be coming up in two weeks here. I am still accepting questions for consideration. And so please send those over to coachingforleaders.com slash feedback. And the next Q&A show will be episode 221. And if you're not already subscribed to the show, please do so. Shows air every Monday. And you can find this show on iTunes, Stitcher, or whatever app you're listening to Uh, me on right now. And I hope you will take a moment before uh, the next episode and to subscribe to the weekly leadership guide if you haven't already. I send that to your inbox on Wednesdays. It is something a little different every Wednesday, but it always includes something that'll be helpful to you on recommendations and some of the curation I've done around articles, podcasts, videos, resources that will help support your leadership development between the shows. And one thing that is always consistent is at the bottom of those uh, that weekly guide, you'll find the links to the show notes, everything that was discussed in all of the Monday episodes. So if you are on the go listening like I am always when I'm listening, pretty much, I hope you will join us on that as well. And you'll also get, when you join the weekly leadership guide, immediate access to my reader's guide that lists the 10 leadership books that will help you get better results from others and brief summaries from me on the value of each of those books. It's an 11-page guide, and it also comes along with a nine-minute video from me on all those books and how I found them helpful, and more importantly, why I think those particular books will be really helpful to you. So if all of that sounds good or any of that sounds good, go to coachingforleaders.com slash subscribe and that will get you onto the weekly leadership guides coming on Wednesdays. And I look forward to talking with you next Monday. Have a great week and see you for the next episode.